You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Before we begin, I want to share something that has absolutely nothing to do with the sermon this morning, um, but it's something that Cornell Special reminded me of. That is the second part of that song was the little drummer boy, rumpa pum pum. And when I was a kid in this school, in about fourth grade, we had to put on a Christmas program in this very room. And back then, uh, when I was in fourth grade, this room held about a thousand people, not the two hundred that you see here. And when I was a kid, this seemed like a thousand people. This would have been fifteen thousand probably here. But there was a stage right behind me here where I'm from where I'm standing. It was raised up a little bigger, and this was a bigger opening back then. And in class, in fourth grade, in class, one of my friends suggested that for our part of our class's contribution to the Christmas program, that I bring the little toy drum that I had, and we would, three of us would get up on stage and we would sing Little Drummer Boy. And I had one job, and that was to pound out Parumpa Pum Pum on my drum. So the day came in the Christmas program, and all the parents were here, and we came out onto the stage, and I was dressed in a, in a robe, of course, a white bathrobe, because that's what drummer boys wore back then, I guess. And I had a, a turban wrapped up on my head, as tall as we could possibly get it, and it was safety pinned all together. And we stepped out here and began singing, and we weren't even first verse into that song when my turban began to slide off to the side. And so as I was singing, I was trying to drum and get my head underneath the turban like this. And eventually one of my buddies noticed it, and they both reached over and crept, put the turban back up onto my head and held it there for the rest of the song. But by the time they, by the time we were done, it was nothing but a matted up towel on top of my head. And while everybody was laughing like you are, we slinked off, slinked off to the side of the stage. So, thanks Cornell for dragging up that painful memory <laughs> and slapping me in the face with it this morning. All right, let's pray together and then we'll get started. Our gracious God, we are thankful for your word and for what it reveals to us concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would help us to focus our hearts and minds upon the text of Scripture here today. Give us understanding in these things so that we may appreciate all that Christ has done for us and the security that we have in him because he is our great high priest. May you be honored and glorified here this morning in Christ's name. Amen. On these weeks leading up to Christmas, we're talking about the mediatorial roles that Jesus fulfilled as our great high priest and as the perfect mediator that God has given to us. And we've broken that down into three offices that Scripture describes that he fulfills, the office of prophet, priest, and king. And last week we looked at Christ and how he functions as a prophet for us. And today we're looking at his high priestly role. Uh, these three these three distinctions that we, we make in terms of what Christ has done, those are uh, those are not just convenient ways to sort of categorize what it is that he has done. These are ways of of really capturing the essence of what it is that he came to do. And there's no one passage in Scripture that says, quote, Christ is our prophet, priest, and king, close quote. There's no one passage that says that. Instead, what we do is we take uh, these different passages, some of which describe him as he functions as our prophet, some of uh, as God's prophet to us, and some passages that describe how he functions as our high priest, and some passages that describe him as king. And we recognize that these three mediatorial roles are are. Uh, they describe what Christ does for us and before God as our mediator. And Charles Hodge, in his book on systematic theology, says this. I want you to listen to the first part of this quotation. We are enlightened in the knowledge of the truth. We are reconciled unto God by the sacrificial death of his Son. 
we are delivered from the power of Satan and introduced into the kingdom of God. Let's stop there just a second. He lists three things. We are enlightened in the knowledge of the truth. That is, because Christ is our prophet, he has brought to us the knowledge of the truth. We are reconciled unto God by the sacrificial death of his son. That describes his priestly work. And we are delivered from the power of Satan and introduced into the kingdom of God. And that describes his role as our king. And then Hodge goes on to say this. All of which supposes that our Redeemer is to us at once prophet, priest, and king. This is not, therefore, simply a convenient classification of the contents of his mission and work, but it enters into its very nature and must be retained in our theology if we would make the truth, take the truth as it is revealed in the Word of God. End quote. Now, what he is saying is that these describing Christ as our prophet, priest, and king are not just coy and convenient ways of saying, well, he kind of does this, he kind of does that, and he kind of does that. Hodge is saying, if you want to understand the person and work of Christ, why it is that he came, you're not going to be able to understand that apart from grasping these concepts that he functions as our prophet, as our priest, and as our king. These are not, these are not ancillary aspects of the work of Christ. This is the central aspect of his work. Our prophet, our priest, and our king. So you want to get your handle, get a handle on who Christ is and what he has done. These three offices help us to do that. And that's one of the reasons why we're kind of going through these things. When I say the word priest, I understand that there may be certain folks here, because of your background, that your understanding or idea of what I mean by priest might be colored because of your exposure to other religious systems, maybe Eastern Orthodoxy or an Orthodox religion or an Eastern religion or even Roman Catholicism. And so when I say that, when I say the word priest and say that Christ functions as a priest, you may be picturing in your mind somebody who is dressed in an ornate robe uh, with all kinds of expensive accoutrements on the outside of it, and he wanders around the sanctuary holding a, a smoking orb to dispense the smell of incense amongst the people, stopping every once in a while to do some perfunctory hand motions that look like a Michael Jackson music video and kissing certain relics and bowing at certain times and speaking phrases in Latin that nobody understands, either the priest or the hearer. Or you may think that because when I say the word priest, you may be thinking that this is just merely a religious figurehead, somebody who sort of sits at the top of a religious organization. He's the head of a church or a denomination or a group of, of religious people. Or he's just the guy that you go to if you need somebody to talk to, get something off your chest, or you need to confess something. Or he's the guy that's there if you need if you need him. He helps you get your wood in in the winter, or uh, baptizes your children, or you call upon him once or twice a year. Or you may think that a priest is somebody who's sort of like a religious sage who just dispenses uh, chicken soup for the soul in a religious version, religious platitudes every once in a while that are supposed to wow you with their profundity. All of those are unbiblical notions. So we should begin by defining what we mean by priest. We don't mean somebody who dresses up like that and does all of those liturgical things, and we don't mean somebody who's just a religious or symbolic figurehead. By priest, and I'll give you a biblical definition, and this is this is a definition I think that matches the biblical text, though I'm drawing this not from a passage of Scripture, but from James Montgomery Boyce's systematic theology text. And he gives, I think, the easiest and the simplest and the best definition of a priest and this is what he writes, a priest is a man appointed to act for others in things pertaining to God. That's it. A priest is a man appointed to act for others in things pertaining to God. Now, there are three elements there to that definition. All three of them are important. A priest is a man who is appointed. And in the Old Testament sense, in the Old Testament priests for the nation of Israel, they were appointed by God. God is the one who appointed them and commissioned them. And they are to act for others. That is, they stand as a mediator. You can hear that idea there. They, they act on behalf of the nation, on the behalf of the people, to do certain things pertaining to God. They weren't, they weren't 
people who functioned on behalf of others in a civic or political realm, but in the spiritual realm in, in things pertaining to God with the religion of the nation. He is a man appointed by God, appointed to act for others in things pertaining to God. And that is what a mediator does. And you see it in the Old Testament with the Old Testament priests that they were, uh, the priests had the responsibility to intercede for the people. They prayed for the people. They stood between the nation and God and offered supplications and prayers to God on behalf of the people. They brought the sacrifices of the people and presented them to God as, as part of uh, the religious worship of the nation. And they also presented the praise and worship of the people to God. So they were an intermediate, intermediary, a mediator between the people and God. So a prophet proclaims the works and the words of God to men. A priest presents the works and the words of men to God. It's going the other direction. So a prophet gives the word and works of God, reveals them to us. A priest acts on our behalf and presents something to God. And in the person of Christ, we see him fulfilling everything that an Old Testament priest did. The Old Testament priest was to bring the people near to God, to offer a sacrifice on their behalf, and to intercede for them. And that is exactly what Scripture says that Christ does for us. That he brings us, draws us near to God. He has offered a sacrifice on our behalf. And he intercedes even right now while we are here. The Son of God is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. So we're going to be looking at the priesthood of Christ and what his sacrifice has done for us. And I would ask you for that to turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 10 if you're not there already. Hebrews chapter 10. There are a lot of passages that we could have gone to in the book of Hebrews where we're doing Hebrews chapter 10. Actually, if you just turn to the book of Hebrews, I, I want to draw your attention to two passages at the beginning of the book in chapter 2 before we get to chapter 10. But I give you something of a background of the book of Hebrews. Uh, Lord willing, we will be into the book of Hebrews before the next calendar year is up. I don't know when that's going to be, but sometime after the book of Ecclesiastes, well, right after the book of Ecclesiastes, we're going to jump in to the book of Hebrews and be looking at this book. And in connection with that study, I'm going to give you a much more thorough introduction to the themes and, and who wrote it, etc. But I just need to give you a couple of a couple of things by way of introducing the book of Hebrews so you kind of put this into a context. Some people think that the book of Hebrews was written by the Apostle Paul. I'm not of that opinion. Uh, I believe that the book of Hebrews was written by somebody else, and we don't know who that somebody else is. So for now, let's just say that we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews was written to um, a group of people that contained a number of different types of, of individuals in it. And the author of Hebrews seems aware of the fact that he is writing to people whom he knows to be believers. He is writing to people whom he knows to be unbelievers. And he is writing to a group of people who may be sitting on the fence that he is not sure whether they are believers or they are unbelievers, but they are sort of playing around the fringes of Christianity and have not made any real commitment yet. And he is writing to a group of people who are Jewish Christians. They have come out of the Judaistic religion with all of the feasts and the festivals and the sacrifices and the blood offerings and the, the meal offerings and all of that stuff. They turned their back on that and they had embraced Jesus Christ and they had uh, they had experienced some of the blessings of that new covenant either because they themselves were part of that new covenant and had believed or because they were part of a Christian community and they were enjoying, like I say, on, from the periphery, a lot of the benefits of the people who had been enjoying the new covenant. So he is writing to, to that group of people, Jewish Christians, who had turned their back on all of that and embraced Christ. But then there seemed to be some among the Hebrews to whom he is writing, who though they had walked away from Old Testament Judaism and the temple and all that went on there and embraced Christ, they were kind of starting to turn back and head in that direction. They were starting to wonder, having abandoned all of those sacrifices, all of the feasts and all of the festivals, and all of the, the animals that we used to offer, now I have believed upon, I just believe upon this one sacrifice in comparison to all of the multitudes of sacrifices that used to be offered. Now you're telling me to trust in just one. 
And I'm to, I'm to give up all the feasts and the festivals and the activities and the doing and the working and all the sights and sounds and smells of that and just believe in Jesus Christ. I'm not to approach God through the high priest anymore, even though he's there in the temple offering sacrifices. I'm not to come to God through him. But now I have to turn my back on that, which we have done for thousands of years, and just come to God through Christ. And they were starting to question the wisdom and the necessity of abandoning all of that for this one man. One sacrifice, one priest, one offering. So they were questioning the necessity of doing that and thinking maybe we ought to go back to be safe. Let's try and keep our hands in sort of on both of these. Keep a foot in each camp, as it were. And the author to Hebrews is writing to them to say, you are not going from the greater to the lesser. You are going from the lesser to the greater. He is the substance of those things. All of those things were shadows. They were pointers. They were signs. They, they looked forward to that. They anticipated that one great sacrifice. He, you're not going from that which is greater and more and better to something that is lesser in only Jesus. When you get Jesus, you get the fulfillment of all of that. He's the sacrifice that ends all the sacrifices. And so he is better than Moses. He's better than Aaron. He's better than Melchizedek. He's better than the sacrifices. He's better than the Passover. He's better than the feasts. He's better than the temple. He's better than all of the Old Testament priests. In fact, his work is better and greater and more perfect than all of the work of all of the priests for all of those thousands of years. So you're leaving the lesser to embrace the greater. And when you have the greater, you don't need anything that belonged to that which was the lesser. Namely, all the stuff that they had grown up with. So that is the book of Hebrews kind of in a nutshell. And that's the background of it. This book, really, one of the main themes of the book of Hebrews is the priesthood of Jesus Christ, that he is our priest. And this is unfolded in chapter after chapter. In fact, it is first mentioned in chapter 2, verse 17. I want you to notice it if you're in the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. So there in chapter 3, verse 1, is the first time he's actually called our high priest. He is the high priest of our confession. So he had to become a high priest. He is our high priest because he was tempted in all things as we are. And then the rest of the book sort of unfolds that idea of the priesthood of Jesus. There is no book and there is no passage in the, New, in the New Testament or the Old Testament that describes the beauty, the wonder, the glory, and the perfection of the priesthood of Jesus Christ more than the book of Hebrews. It is a book about that and everything that is connected to it. In fact, Jesus is called a priest and his priesthood is explained in chapters 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 13. He thought I was going to say 11. No, there's three chapters where it's not mentioned or it's not directly mentioned, and that's chapters 1, chapter 11, and chapter 12. In chapter 11 and 12, the implications of that priesthood are worked out by means of application, and in chapter 1, it kind of lays the groundwork for it by the author of Hebrews saying, Jesus is better than the angels, because to which one of the angels did he ever say, sit at my right hand? To which one of the angels did he ever say, let all the angels of God worship him? But to the Son, he says these things. So chapter 1 presents Jesus as the express image of the, the very deity of God Himself. He is the nature of God. He is one in substance. He is the Son of God. And therefore, He is greater than the angels. And that kind of lays the groundwork. That this one who is the divine Son took upon Himself human flesh and became our priest to act on our behalf in things pertaining to God. So, that is Hebrews. Now, the book, the passage that I'm, that I'm presenting to you this morning in chapter 10, you can turn over to chapter 10 now. This passage in chapter 10 
I could have chosen anything from chapters 2 through 10 or chapter 13 or any one of those passages, but I chose chapter 10 because this passage, verse 11 through 14, is kind of the conclusion, a summary to an argument that the author has been making for a number of chapters. And you're going to see it goes all the way back earlier into chapters 8 and 9 where he's making this argument that Jesus is better and that his sacrifice is better. He is comparing Christ's sacrifice with the Old Testament priest's sacrifice and Christ's priesthood with their priesthood and his work with their works. And so there, the author draws here a number of comparisons between the two. And I want us to focus on those number of comparisons, and there are three of them that we're going to be looking at this morning. And these three, there are more comparisons that could be drawn out of this passage, but these three sort of serve as, as headings or categories, if you were, of, of, of um, different th- ways in which Jesus is different than the Old Testament priests. But today we're just going to look at these three, and then verse 14 is sort of the closing hammer that the author drops regarding the perfection of the work of Christ. Verse 14 says, For by one offering he is perfected for all time those who are sanctified. It could not be any clearer. It could not be any more glorious than that. But we'll get to it in due time. So we're going to be looking at three contrasts. Before we do, I need you to bump up to verse 10 because we're going to catch something that is said in verse 10. For by this will, that is by the will of God, the will that is mentioned earlier in verses 7 through 9, by this will we have been sanctified. The word sanctified means set apart or made holy. When it is used of men in Scripture, it is always used in this sense of somebody being set apart by God for God. Made, uh, sometimes it's translated make holy. Uh, the idea is that we are set apart in a holy way, that we are other or taken out of the world. So those we have been sanctified in the sense that we have been set apart by God for God. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering. What is it that has sanctified us or set us apart or made us holy? The offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And that's key. So now in verse 11, and you'll notice in verse 14, he talks about those who are sanctified again. That's why I backed up to verse 10. So you can see that we are describing here those who are believers. The word sanctified is never used of unbelievers, those who perish in everlasting flames. The word sanctified is never used of them anywhere in Scripture. This can only describe believers. So believers have been set apart by the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. He has done this. And now in verses 11 through 13, he offers a series of contrasts between the Old Testament priests and what they did, and Jesus and what he has done. And there are three of them. And here are the three contrasts, if you're keeping notes. Three comparisons. Number one, the work of the work of the Old Testament priest was never finished. The work of Christ is finished. That's the first one. Second, the Old Testament priest offered multiple sacrifices. Christ offered one. And third, the Old Testament sacrifices could not take away sin. Christ has. All right, so the work of the Old Testament priest was never finished. Christ's work is. The Old Testament priest offered multiple sacrifices. Christ has offered one. The Old Testament sacrifices could not take away sin. Christ's sacrifice has. Those are the three comparisons that he draws here in the passage. And then the concluding statement is in verse 14. So let's look at those three comparisons. First, the work of the Old Testament priest was never finished. You see this in verse 11 where the author says, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. By the way, the present tense there indicates that when the author wrote this book, it was sometime before 70 A.D. because the temple was still standing. The priests were still offering these sacrifices. There was still this daily ministry going on and on. And it describes the never-ending work of the priest. They could never stop and they never stopped working. Every day this went on. There was a morning offering that had to be offered and there was an evening offering that had to be offered. Every single day without fail. The morning offering and the evening offering. And the next day, the morning offering and then the evening offering. And on top of that then, 
There were all of the offerings that were related to ceremonial cleanliness and purification. There were the offerings of animals that were related to uh, different feasts and festivals and high holy days and Sabbaths and different offerings related to uh, different uh, uh, celebrations that were going on during, depending on the time of the year. Some offerings were lambs, some offerings were bulls, some offerings were turtle doves. And on top of all of and those are just the prescribed ones. But then at any moment, at any time of the day, a head of a household could walk in with his lamb or his oxen or his turtle dove and make an offering to the Lord, and the priest would process that offering, killing that animal, spilling its blood, and doing whatever it was that was prescribed in the Old Testament. This went on every single day. It was like a slaughterhouse. Whether it was the tabernacle or the temple, this offering of animals happened continually. And so verse 11 says, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. They never stopped offering sacrifices. Never. Inside the temple or the tabernacle, there was a, a table for showbread. There was a lampstand. There was a, 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 a laver for for uh, washing your hands and different aspects of ceremonial cleanliness. There was an altar that was there. The Ark of the Covenant was back there. But there was no couch. There was no chair. There was no stool because a priest never sat down. From the time that he showed up, he was working and offering the animal sacrifice and doing everything prescribed in the law. And he did this until the end of his shift. And then he left and he knew that the very next day he would have to come back and do it all over again. There were 24 different orders of priests and they rotated their responsibilities, each order taking taking a different aspect of temple administration for for their period of time. And so every priest had this experience of going in and offering the same sacrifices day after day after day. And they never stopped. They couldn't stop. Now contrast that with Christ in verse 12. But he, that is Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. That's a finished work. One sacrifice for all time, and he has sat down at the right hand of God. No priest ever did that. No priest would ever be so presumptuous as to walk in and present an offering and then sit down inside the tabernacle of the temple as if his work was done. Because his work was never done. He could never sit down and he could never rest. Imagine if a high priest were to first on the Day of Atonement offer his uh, sacrifice for his own sins and then to grab another sacrifice and offer that sin on be, a sacrifice on behalf of the sins of the people and he were to walk back behind the veil in the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the Ark of the Covenant with that blood and then having done that, kind of feel a sense of satisfaction like he had once for all atoned for sin and then pull up a chair and sit down back in the Holy of Holies. You know what would have happened to such a priest? He would have been struck dead on the spot for that type of presumption. But Jesus Christ, the book of Hebrews says, has entered into the Holy of Holies. He has gone beyond the veil, that is, into the very presence of God Himself, and has offered a sacrifice, His own blood, for the sins of His people. And then He sat down right there in the Holy of Holies at the right hand of the Father. Never to offer another sacrifice again. Because it is a finished work. And that's what He said on the cross. It's finished. It's done. The price has been paid. The sacrifice has been made. Nothing else would need to be done because he has offered himself once and for all, and the work is done, and he could sit down at the Father's right hand. This idea of Christ sitting at the Father's right hand or the right hand of, of the majesty on high is something that is mentioned four times in the book of Hebrews. This is the third time it is mentioned. Let me read to you each of these, and I want you to listen to the, the connection between priestly service and sitting down at that right hand. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. And he is the radiance of his glory in the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That kind of introduces the book of Hebrews. That's the third verse in the book. Having made purification for sins, he sat down. 
And for the rest of the book, the author is going to explain what that means. How is it that he could offer one sacrifice and then sit down as if his work is completed? Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens. High priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of God. Hebrews 10, verse 12 is the second, uh, the third reference to that. And then chapter 12, verse 2 says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. A finished work. Four times, four times the author of Hebrews mentions that. He has done his priestly work, and then he sat down. Never to perform it again. Ever again. Now, if you read a translation that when it quotes the Old Testament, it sets it apart in some way, like the NASB, for instance, uses all capital letters. You'll notice that there are two quotations from the Old Testament, one in verse 12 and one in verse 13. The one in verse 12 is, he sat down at the right hand of God. Verse 13 says, waiting for that time onward, and then a quotation, until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. Both of those quotations from the Old Testament, the one in verse 12 and the one in verse 13, both come from the same passage, the same verse in the Old Testament, and it's Psalm 110, verse 1. Now, Psalm 110, verse 1 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Keep that in mind sometime if you're ever doing Bible trivia and you're asked the question, what is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament from the Old Testament? And you have the answer at Psalm 110. It's a very messianic psalm and it's quoted on a number of occasions in the Gospels and in the Epistles. And in fact, Psalm 110, verse 4, well, here's what Psalm 110, verse 1 says. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Psalm 110, verse 4 says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Does that sound familiar? That should sound familiar. Because that verse is quoted earlier in the book of Hebrews. When it makes the argument that Jesus Christ fulfills the Old Testament priesthood and he is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So Psalm 110 is, is what is quoted here in these two passages. And this is a, a key theme here in the book of, of Hebrews. Why? Because having offered one sacrifice for sins, he has sat down at the right hand. And he is waiting until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. No other sacrifice for sins is needed. No other work to atone for further sins is required. The only work that needed to be done to make purification for sins and to perfect forever all those who belong to Christ has been done that one time. And he has sat down and now he waits until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. Hebrews chapter 7 says that Christ does not need daily like those other high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Turn back one page or chapter to chapter 9. I want you to look at verse 24. 9 verse 24. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that's not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. So when, when he says we, he, he has sat down at the right hand of the Father until he makes his enemies a footstool for his feet, those are two different events. The one is him completing the work of redemption and sitting down. And the next is when God puts all things under his feet, when he comes back and he will return. That's what Hebrews chapter 9 verse 28 says. He will appear again, but not with reference to sin, 
So that when he comes back, it's not to atone for sin. It's not to finish some sacrificial work. It's not to complete the redemptive process. It's none of that. It will be to judge his enemies. And he will destroy the nations and he will tread out the winepress of the wrath of Almighty God and he will send to hell all those who are impenitent and refuse to obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he returns, it will not be to complete another act of redemption for sin. It will be an act of judgment. And you and I live in this period of time between those two events. He has sat down and he is waiting until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. And here we are living in the middle, somewhere between those two events. So that's the first comparison, the first contrast, that the Old Testament priest, or the Old Testament priest's work was never finished, and Christ's work is finished. And the second one, the Old Testament priest offered multiple sacrifices, Christ has offered one. I gave you a list of all the different kinds of sacrifices that were offered, morning and evening and feasts and festivals and purification, and personal and individual and corporate sacrifices and all of those different things that continually went on. Uh, the priest had to do this year after year, knowing that every Passover they had to repeat the same thing a year from then at the next Passover. And every morning they had to repeat that day after day, time after time, month after month, year after year. This went on continually from the time that the sacrifices were uh, implemented and and in, perpet- in perpetuity. There was never to be an end to this. Obviously, until one final sacrifice could be made, and then God put an end to it by destroying the temple in 70 A.D. through the Romans. But in the meantime, this was perpetually to go on. Uh, Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, he lived between 37 and 100 A.D. And he uh, that means that he was born a couple years after Jesus was crucified and rose again. Josephus wrote a book called Jewish Wars, and he describes in there a typical Jewish Passover in the temple. And in that passage, he says that on the Passover, on the day of the Passover, the afternoon of the Passover, there were 256,500 lambs that were sacrificed on that day. 256,500. Josephus doesn't seem to indicate that that was atypical or unique or just a high week, a high month, or a high event. It wasn't. This was seemed to be what happened every Passover. That's a lot. You and I can't even imagine that kind of sacrifice taking place. But when a million Jews descend upon the nation, on the city of Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, and they all hover around the temple and bring their lamb into the temple courtyard to have it sacrificed, there was one prescribed five-hour period in the afternoon of the Passover where the lambs were to be uh, executed and they were to be uh, killed for the sins of the people. And everybody brought their Passover lamb, 256,500. Now, according to my calculations, and I'm a public school student, so you have to recheck this before you tell this to anybody else. According to my calculations, if you had 150 priests killing each of them, killing one lamb every 10 seconds, it would take them five hours to go through that. That is a marvel of efficiency, and that is a butchering of lambs and sacrifices that simply boggles the mind. The Jews were were used to the smell of blood because those sacrifices reminded them of the gravity of their sin and the cost of it and the seriousness of it. Those sacrifices served to remind them, this is what my sin has done. All of this blood, this is what my sin has cost. And all the sacrifices reminded them that another one, an innocent one, must die in their place if they are to have access to God. Every animal sacrifice anticipated that and looked forward to that. And this went on continually, never ending. But in Christ it has stopped. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11-14 through 14 says this, When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood, He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling, those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, 
How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The Old Testament priests offered multiple sacrifices, multitudes of sacrifices, millions upon millions of sacrifices. And Christ has offered one. Now, can you see why it is that some of the Hebrew Christians would have been thinking that they had gone from the greater to the lesser? They were used to walking into the temple, which looked like a slaughterhouse, and being reminded that it cost all of this blood. This is my sin. All of this blood and sacrifice. All of these innocent victims dying in my place. And now you want me to turn and trust in one sacrifice, one man who offered it one time? When I'm used to being reminded that year after year, Passover after Passover, I had to see this and smell this and, and feel this, after seeing the gravity of that, now I'm going to just trust in one sacrifice? But the argument of the author of Hebrews is that that one sacrifice did something that none of those Old Testament sacrifices could do. He offered it one time. It was perfect. And he sat down. Nothing else is needed. And when I say nothing else is needed, nothing else is needed. Compare that teaching, if you will, with the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church regarding Mass. And Rome teaches that Mass, every time Mass is done, it is a re-sacrificing of the body and the blood of Christ all over again. Every Mass offers that up all over again, a perpetual sacrifice time after time to deal with the sins that the sacrifice of Christ could never deal with. Any suggestion that the work of Christ on the cross somehow needs our added works or our added involvement or something that we would do to make it perfect or to effectuate it in some way is a blasphemous statement. Any teaching that suggests that what he did needs to be repeated time and time again, the argument of the author of Hebrews is it doesn't need to be repeated. Why? Because it was one perfect sacrifice. And all of the Old Testament sacrifices were to be done one after another after another in perpetuity, never ending. Why? Because one of the things that they were to teach us, when you looked at all those sacrifices and saw that the work was never done, the lesson was these sacrifices can never do something. That is why they were always being done. And it looks forward to that one sacrifice that would end all sacrifices. That one sacrifice that would do what none of them could do. That one sacrifice that was perfect and effectual. That would put away all those other sacrifices and make all of them of no effect. And that's the third contrast. So the first one is that the work of the Old Testament priest was never finished and the work of Christ is. The Old Testament sacrifices, priests offered multiple sacrifices, and Christ has offered one. And the third contrast in the text is that the Old Testament sacrifices could not take away sin, but Christ's sacrifice has. The Old Testament sacrifices could never take away sin. You say, then what did they do? Well, they reminded us of our sin. They showed us the gravity of our sin. They were the means by which God was satisfied for a period of time regarding sin so that His people could come to Him. It was an act of faith. Everybody was to bring their sacrifice in recognition that an innocent one has to die for me. It was an object lesson in substitutionary atonement that somebody else had to substitute and die in my place so that I can have access to God and that I can be accepted to Him, acceptable to Him. But those Old Testament sacrifices never took away sin. It just covered it up. If you were to come to, if you've ever had dinner at our house, then you know what this is like. We sit down at the table and we eat a big meal, and then all of the mess that's on the table, um, it never gets put away with, and it just it gets ignored for a period of time as we go into the front room and enjoy fellowship until 
and then the company leaves, and then my wife does all the work of putting it all away and dealing with it and taking care of it. Well, that's just how we roll, right? We, we make the mess, and the mess is there. It doesn't go away, but we go in the other room, and we ignore it until after the company leaves, then it's taken out of the way. It's almost as if we throw a cloth over top of the mess, dealing with the mess later on. That's what the Old Testament sacrifices did. They, they simply put a cloth over those sins, didn't remove them, didn't remove the guilt. It wasn't able to do that. And the problem with the Old Testament sacrifices was not in the number of the sacrifices. If you had doubled the number of sacrifices, and instead of 256,500 sacrifices, if you had offered whatever double that is, I'm not even going to try and do math in front of you, but if you had offered, if you had doubled that, it wouldn't have come any closer to taking away sin than the 256,000. And if you had multiplied that 256,000 tenfold and offered that number of sacrifices every Passover, it would have come no closer to dealing with the sin issue than the 256,000. Because the problem with Old Testament sacrifices is not that not enough were offered. It was not with the number of them, it was with the nature of them. Christ has done what the Old Testament sacrifices could never do. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. Couldn't do it. Because what we needed was a man to die in our place, not animals. Animals reminded us that we needed a man to die in our place. And now Christ has done what they could never do and taken sin completely out of the way And why is he able to do that? Because he is the perfect God-man. So as man, he can stand in my place and represent me to God, offer a sacrifice on my behalf. And as God, he has a righteousness that is infinite and a perfection that is infinite so that this one sacrifice that he offers is able to atone perfectly for all the sins of all the people who have ever and will ever believe upon him. That one sacrifice is perfect enough to do that. The Old Testament sacrifices never could. And no... Here is the the clincher, the conclusion to his argument in verse 14. Chapter 10, verse 14. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. One offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Now, the content of this verse directly touches on two theological issues. Number one, can I lose my salvation? And number two, for whom did Christ die? Those two issues are directly addressed in this passage, in verse 14. So let's work our way through it. For by one offering he has sanctified forever for all time, or he has perfected forever all those who are sanctified. What did Christ come to do? He did not come just to make salvation possible. He didn't come to just make men savable and then provide a pool of righteousness out of which we can draw if we need it, when we need it. Uh, to provide for us a merit or to infuse some ability into us. He didn't just spread out His grace over all of humanity and then leave it up to us to to activate the, the work of Christ on the cross on our behalf by our belief or our decision or our choice or whatever it is. Christ didn't come to make men savable. He didn't come to, to make salvation possible. He came to actually do something. And what did He come to actually do? To perfect forever all those who are sanctified. That is what the death of Christ does. It doesn't just make men savable. It actually saves men. And whom does it save? Those who are sanctified. Who are the sanctified? The rest of the passage, verses 15 through the end of verse 18, actually describe those who are sanctified. It is believers. And as I said at the beginning, the word sanctified is never used to describe those who perish in eternal flames. Unbelievers. The impenitent. They're not sanctified. They're not made holy. They're not set apart. And they're not made perfect. But in the death of Christ, He has made forever perfect those who are sanctified. And who are the sanctified ones? Verse 16, they're the ones that enjoy the new covenant that God has made with them. They are the ones whose sins and lawless deeds are are forgotten and remembered no more. Verse 17, verse 18, they are the ones who are forgiven and so no longer require an offering for sin. They are the ones who 
Uh, they're the ones who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Their spirit is in us and His law, His spirit is in us and the, the law is written on our hearts. Those are believers. That passage describes believers. So here's the author's point. In that one sacrifice, He has made perfect all of those who are set apart by God for salvation. Those who are sanctified. So for whom did Christ die? He came and He paid a perfect and infinite price to perfect forever. For just this life, for a period of time, until you can lose your salvation, how long? He came to perfect forever those whom the Father has set apart and given to His Son. That's John chapter 6. The Father gave a people to His Son, and the Son will lose none of them. Why? Because in that one sacrifice, He paid the price that forever secured our salvation. That's not just salvation. That's sanctification, and it is security. And He has done that. He has done the work to everlastingly and perfectly and eternally save, to purchase redemption for all those for whom He died. Your security and presence and perfection in glory, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, is absolutely guaranteed. It is absolutely guaranteed. Why? Because Christ died for you. That's it. If He died for you and He died in your place, You have been set apart. You have been sanctified. You have been made perfect. You have been given that standing. You have been justified and declared righteous. And He, in that death, purchased your eternal redemption. And you can never lose that because the same one who died to to pay the price for your sin is the same one who is guaranteed that He will bring you safely and everlastingly to eternal glory. That is the work of our prophet, our priest, and our king. Let's pray. Father, what a marvelous truth it is that we have seen in this passage, that we have a Savior who has offered that one sacrifice for us. May our hearts rejoice in this truth, and may you instill within us a confidence in that salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. For those who are here who may not have ever repented and trusted Christ for salvation, I pray that you would open their eyes so that they may see in the person of Christ the sacrifice for their sin that they so desperately need. Make them to feel their weight for their transgressions against your law. Make them to tremble before your holiness and to see their need for a sacrifice. Thank you that you have brought into this world the Lord Jesus Christ and sent him on uh, to work on our behalf, to, to serve on our behalf, to live a perfect life on our behalf, and then to offer a perfect sacrifice so that we might not only be forgiven but declared righteous. We thank you for these truths. May we rest in them. May they serve as the ground of our confidence and our assurance before you, before your throne of grace, and may they motivate us to holy and perfect and, and righteous living, we pray in Christ's name. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.